Amen. I, uh, I, I have kind of, a, kind of a routine for Sunday mornings, and so I was trying this morning to remember the routine, and I added something new to the routine. I was sitting at my desk where I usually go through my sermon notes, and I've got a bag of trail mix on my desk. It's really good. It's got like walnuts in it, and, and I ate some trail mix, which is not part of the routine, and I've got like a, like a piece of walnut or something stuck in my throat right now. Just really needed you to know that, um, because that's the only thing on my mind at the moment, is how annoyed I am with that piece of walnut. I was drinking my tea furiously, and it didn't help. We're going to be okay, though. You and me, we're going to be okay in this together. Um, if you were here my last Sunday before we left on sabbatical, I, I preached a sermon. I said, where do you go? I said, when things are good, when things are tough, when you're in times of plenty, when you're in times of need or wanting, where do you go? And the invitation is, no matter what season of life it is, make that a season where you go to God. And on the one hand, what I'm going to talk about this morning is kind of in connection with that theme, but on the other hand, I couldn't come up with another title, and I didn't want David to make another graphic, so I just put the same title and graphic for this Sunday and next Sunday, because sometimes the right thing to do is whatever's easiest. Sometimes. Sometimes I put lots of thought and energy and prayer and people and like teams into the titles and the, the graphics, and sometimes I just do whatever's easiest. I hope the same is true for you sometimes. Um, but here's what we're going to talk about. Uh, I, I said it already at the beginning of the morning. Uh, we're going to talk about the idea of abundant life. And I think my slides just froze up, so maybe you're not going to look at slides, but maybe we are. Hey, there we go. Uh, there we go. We're going to talk about abundant Life. Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples one day, uh, he was telling this, this, them this little story, and the story was about some sheep. And Jesus, in the story, he says, you know what, uh, just like in their lives, they were people who, uh, you know, Jesus and the disciples, they understood sheep and shepherds. That was kind of part of their life. Um, I personally haven't spent a lot of time with sheep in my life. I don't know, maybe you have, but I, I haven't. Um, but for them, they knew that being a shepherd was kind of dangerous. There were not only wild animals to protect, they had to protect the sheep against, but there were also people who would try to steal sheep on a regular basis because sheep were valuable. And Jesus said that the thief comes to try and steal the sheep, even kill or destroy them. But the good shepherd, and Jesus says he's the good shepherd, The good shepherd comes, and and Jesus says about himself, he says, I, the good shepherd, have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And Jesus was talking about the sheep. Jesus, the shepherd, comes so the sheep might have life. But then if you're like me, you're like, whoa, whoa, hold on. Who's the sheep? And the somewhat uncomfortable answer is that actually you and I are the sheep. And to be more specific, the sheep is anybody who decides they want their life to be about following Jesus. So just quick little internal inventory in your head, in your heart, just be like, hold on a second. Do I want my life to be about following Jesus? Just kind of inside, yes or no. If the answer is yes, then what I'm going to talk about today is some things that come from Jesus and come from the teaching of scripture that Jesus says uh, really matters. And if you want your life to be about following Jesus, then these things um, really matter because this is God speaking to you. If your answer was no, I don't want my life to be about Jesus. I hope these are still really helpful and valuable. But let's be honest, scripture is kind of optional for you if, if you're not committed to following Jesus. And I'm glad you're with us if that's you. I don't, I don't know. Um, 
But I just kind of want to set the stage to remind us, and I know this was a part of, for, for me over the past seven weeks, this reminder of when I say I want to follow Jesus, what that means is I want to follow Jesus. That's what it means. And that means that wherever he's going, if he's going somewhere, that's where I'm going to go to. And it's been helpful for me to pause and reflect on how I've been trying to do that in my life, how we've been doing, trying to do it together, and I hope uh, we continue to learn that together uh, all the more. Uh, the, the way I kind of did that last summer was I wrote a rule of life. You may recall we talked about this, this idea of a rule of life is just sort of an intentional sitting down and saying, how do I follow Jesus in my life? I mean, I do a lot of things in my life. There's a lot of different things that go on every day. If I want to get really intentional, what am I going to do on purpose so that I can say, yes, my life is about following Jesus. One of the things that a friend, mentor of mine, said while I was creating this rule, uh, his name is Brian Gray. He's preached here before. You may remember him. Uh, Brian said, a rule of life should be more downstream than upstream. Here's what I meant by that. Have you ever paddled on a river? And if so, what's easier? Is it easier to paddle downstream with the current or is it easier to paddle upstream against the current? Yes, you know, the answer is it's easier to paddle downstream. Hopefully a rule of life isn't about like, I'm going to really muster up my, I'm just going to work really hard no matter what. Hopefully a rule of life is what are the rhythms I can have that feel somewhat natural? They're kind of true to who God made me and, and, and how I like to live. They feel a little bit more like downstream than upstream. And, and that's what I was really trying to do this summer was say, over the past year, I've pretty intentionally engaged my rule of life. I had these activities, I had these rhythms, I had these habits, I had sort of a morning routine, I had some things I did during the day, and this summer I asked myself, looking back over the past year, have I been really trying to just work upstream, just make it all about like, I'm going to you know, grip my teeth and work hard for Jesus, or have I been saying, you know what, if God's love really is more than enough, have I been letting him float me downstream? So I'm going to share a little bit this morning and next morning about some things that I learned, uh, some challenges God gave me, and I hope they're valuable to you as well. But uh, first, if you'd indulge me, let me just share some pictures and tell you some of the things that I did, because uh, we got some good pictures. Um, one of the really significant parts of the whole sabbatical was right at the very beginning, uh, my whole family and I went up to the mountains, went to the Cimarron Valley. If you've never been to the Cimarron Valley, go. It's gorgeous. It's kind of in between Uray and Montrose, and it's if you've been to that part of the country, you know those places are pretty remote to begin with. So you go from either of those cities, and then you just go towards the middle of nowhere. And once you get to the middle of nowhere, you're in the Cimarron Valley, and it's breathtaking. Uh, you know, 14,000-foot peaks, uh, giant reservoirs. Uh, we, we got some time away, some hiking, some paddling. Um, but the family camp was really phenomenal. Uh, all the families there happened to be families from the school that my two older kids go to. So we kind of knew a lot of the families, and the kids had friends. Um, and we show up, and, and the, the structure of the week is that every morning, the kids have activities. You know, kids go off for programming. Parents all get together, and we kind of we do some extended Bible study time and discussion time just as parents, which is always, you know, really good. For, for those of you that have been or are parents of young kids, um, as much as you love your kids, it's nice to have time when all you do is have conversation with other adults. That's a really a really kind of wonderful thing. Um, it doesn't matter what you're talking about, just hanging out. Well, so, you know, we get there, and, and we start the first Bible study, and um, something pretty incredible happens. The couple, uh, Matt and Chantal McGee, that runs the retreat, 
they had explained how they write a brand new curriculum every other year, and they kind of encourage families to consider coming maybe every two or three years. And they were just starting, the week that we were there was one of the very first weeks of this summer, and one of the very first weeks of this brand new curriculum they had written. And do you know what the theme of the curriculum was? Abundant life. I'm still, I'm just like, and I just, I got to the end of the week and I was just like, thank you, God. Thank you for giving me that gift. A theme that I started a year ago, a year and a half ago almost. And I began my sabbatical by going to a camp where I had no idea, I didn't know until I got there, that the theme was exactly what I was setting out to think, pray, reflect on. Um, And I was grateful that God gave me that little gift. Um, On the way home from the Cimarron Valley, we stopped at the uh, Black Canyon of the Gunnison. Um, This is, this is, this is a, this, you know, look at this. This is a great family picture. Everybody's looking at the camera. Uh, I'm going to show you some other options of family pictures that we took later. But uh, I, I took this one, even though it's not at the camp. That, to me, is how sabbatical began. We were together. We were in a beautiful place. There was no cell phone reception, which is just always a good thing for my soul. Um, the kids had some really special experiences. You can go to the next slide. At the camp, here's one of Naomi helping Asa walk up a steep hill. And that's the whole week, my kids did nothing but help one another and be kind to one another. It was great. It was just unimaginable. Uh, Why are you you laughing? Um, After that week, which was so good, we then did something a little crazy. Uh, I mean, we we were around. We took some, Mickey and I took some time to ourselves. We put the kids in day camp around here for a while, and it was really good. But then we took a big trip out to visit my brother and sister-in-law and their family in Boston. Uh, We drove there, which was great. Um, some of you have questioned my sanity in choosing to drive to Boston. I'm perfectly sane, people. I don't know what the problem is. Um, great time with my brother. We went up to Acadia National Park in Maine, which is beautiful. If you've never been there, go there. It's gorgeous. Uh, on the way, we made a couple stops. We stopped uh, at, in Washington, D.C., went to see some of the monuments there, some of the museums there. So great. Um, fun watching at least the older kids kind of really get into some of the history, some of the uh, you know, some things about our country, really um, significant if you were to ask Asa, though, uh, what his favorite part of Washington, D.C. was, uh, I tried it this morning. He sort of remembered. You know, there's, there's the history. There's the monuments. There's just this beautiful stuff. There's all these incredible things to see. But there was one thing that, for Asa, stood out above the rest. See, right in front of the uh, Capitol building, there's the Capitol uh, Reflection Pond. Do you guys, you guys know the Capitol Reflection? You know, it's, it's really, there's some monuments next to it. Um, and Asa loved... The Capitol Reflection Pond. Asa, what do you see? Yes, What are they? A mommy. That's a mommy? A mommy what? Those ducks. A mommy duck. The ducks were hands down the highlight, maybe of the whole trip. I mean, every day we got a great little spot just two blocks from the Capitol. Every day Asa would walk by and like scream with delight about the ducks. And so, you know, we're, we're just invited to find joy with our kids wherever we find it. Um, but we spent time with my brother and his family. Here's my kids and my, my brother's three kids, the whole family. This is another pretty good picture. Um, you know, they're all kind of looking. Here's the one of me. I had just dropped Asa and was trying to get off screen before the picture was taken. That's, that's how we roll. Um, But it was a time with a lot of activities and a lot of memories. It was a time um, just with some really special connection, you know, with me and the kids, with Mickey and I, with some other family. Um, 
And through it all, I was really reflecting on what it means to live in the abundant life that God has offered to us. And so I want to share with you um, a couple things that I've, a couple stories from Scripture that really stood out to me during this time, um, and a couple challenges that that I've been taking seriously, and I hope um, they're significant for you as well. So Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. But in a sense, if Jesus was talking about sheep and anybody who's his follower is one of the sheep, then in a sense, Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus wants for you to have the abundant life that he gives. That's that's why he's giving it, is so that you and I can have it. And I'm actually going to talk more next week about that word, you. I'm going to talk more about it next week. But just right now, remember this. God gave abundant life to all humanity, made it available, because he wants you to have it. And two stories about what does it take to, to, to receive this gift God gives. Um, first, first story is one you might be familiar with. I'm going to call it, for the sake of this morning, the story of two trees. This story comes at the very beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Uh, you might have heard of it. And uh, God created, and every time he created, he said, this is really good. And on the sixth day of creation, God created two humans. We typically call them Adam and Eve. And God looked at Adam and Eve, and he planted them this really nice garden, and he had made all these animals and fish and plants that bear fruit. And Adam, God said to Adam and Eve, he said, hey, you guys, you can eat whatever you want. This whole beautiful garden I gave you, you can have anything you want from this garden. The citrus trees, you can, you can make yourself orange juice every morning if you want. You can have like limes and, you know, the avocado plants over there. You can make guacamole in the garden. And so we know that God gave abundance to Adam and Eve at the beginning. He said, you can eat whatever you want. And the whole story of creation was a story of, it was abundance. I mean, the the earth was fruitful. It was lavish. And God said, all of it. You can have all of it, right? Scripture starts with an image of a God who gives abundance to the very first humans. And then God includes one small word to that lavish, lavish gift. He says, you can can have all of it. You can have everything. I mean, literally, there's only two humans, and there's the whole creation. God's like, you have everything at your disposal. But there was a but, right? There was a but. Everything. I mean, just the whole thing. But, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good. And, evil. and the story says that there were two trees in the center of the garden. One was the tree of life, and they could eat from the tree of life. They've got as much life as they want. All the fruit from the tree of life, it's all there and it's all theirs, but not the second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we could go very, we could, we could do all sorts of things about why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that's a great question, and we're not going to try to answer that question this morning. We don't have time. I'm sorry. But let's talk about it later, or talk to one another about it. It's great. Here's the thing that strikes me. Adam and Eve had everything, and God put some boundaries on that provision, because the world we live in has boundaries. We know that boundaries are actually a good thing. The Black Canyon of the Gunnison had a fence, and that was a boundary, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing that there's a boundary on the edge of the canyon. Boundaries are good things. And God put a rather small, simple boundary, and even though Adam and Eve had everything, they still chose to break that 
boundary. I think that the story of the two trees is actually a story about contentment. Adam and Eve, though they had all they could ever possibly want, for some reason still weren't content with what God had given them. Let me ask you a question. If you're a person who really wants your life to be about following Jesus and really wants to find and receive that abundant life that God wants to give you, when you consider your life today, when you consider the gifts God has given you, when you consider the ways God has provided for you, whether grand and lavish or simple and, uh, you know, and, and, and humble and, and wonderful, um, I wonder, are you content? I found myself often, as I was evaluating my rule of life, pondering, is this really about me finding greater contentment in the gifts that God has given me, like David invited us to do just now, remembering to pause and not simply always run for what's next and what's more, but rather pause and say, can I simply be grateful, be satisfied as though the riches of fair, can I be content with what God has given me? I think if we want to be people who grow an abundant life, we need to learn contentment. Because here's the thing about contentment. I get that we're in different places, right? Some of us really have had uh, uh, abundance lavished on us in many ways in life, whether relational abundance or an abundance of purpose and meaning in life or a, a financial abundance. Abundance can come and also Some of us have been lavished and received greatly in life. Some of us, maybe we're struggling. Maybe we're lacking in different ways. Maybe we're hurting and it feels like we're barely making it by. But it turns out the thing about discontentment is that it actually doesn't relate at all to whether we have much or plenty. Scripture teaches in various different places, and I think our our experience will often confirm that discontentment can grow regardless of whether we are lacking or have plenty. Human beings are capable of being discontent no matter how much they do or don't have. And in fact, the converse is true as well. We can learn, we must learn contentment regardless of whether we have little or plenty. The question is not, do we have this amount or that amount? The question is, are we learning to be content with the gifts God has given us? Here's here's my first of of two invitations this morning. Spend some time. This is what I spent some time doing. I'd encourage you. It's 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 a meaningful process of reflection. Maybe you do journaling. Maybe you have a conversation uh, with, a, with a friend, with a spouse, with a loved one, with somebody you trust. Spend some time engaging with this simple question. Are you content? Turns out scripture is full of stories about people who needed to learn this very lesson. I mean, the disciples themselves who were with Jesus, I mean, they were best friends with Jesus. They were uh, uh, companions with Jesus. They traveled around with Jesus. They were arguably the ones who who could most say, I can be content because I'm with Jesus. And yet, you know what the disciples did on a few occasions? They argued about who got to be second in command. As though being one of the 12 wasn't enough, they were arguing about who got to be number two. Because, oh, yeah, you, you know, you're on, the, you're, on, you're on the squad, but no, it doesn't matter. Everybody can struggle with discontentment. But there's one story that maybe more than any other in Scripture is just laughably uh, illustrative of the challenge of discontentment in our world, and that's the story of King Solomon and Solomon's wisdom and his wealth. If you're not familiar with the story of King Solomon, um, this is the son of King David, and King David was a, a big 
deal in the Old Testament. God made some promises to David about how uh, uh, David and his ancestry would sit on the throne of Jerusalem forever. And so Solomon comes along, David's son. David was a great king in Israel, and Solomon kind of comes next. And at the beginning of Solomon's rule, this pretty incredible thing happens. If this ever happens to you, just like, wow, learn from the beginning of Solomon's story. God comes to Solomon in a dream, and God says to Solomon, hey, Solomon, um, if you want, if you want, pretty sure this is how God talked, if you want, um, I'll give you whatever you want, right? Solomon's like, wow, that's, I mean, that's pretty great, God. Um, And what Solomon does is he thinks, and he says, you know what, being a king, at this point, the kingdom of Israel was pretty large. Lots of people um, challenging leadership, apparently being a ruler over a large nation is complicated and a difficult task. I don't know if that's still true today or in other contexts, but for Solomon, for Solomon, he realized that the task of being the king of Israel was very challenging. So Solomon says, you know what, God, what I really need is for you to give me an understanding heart and to give me the wisdom I need to be an effective, a good, godly king over Israel. And it turns out that God really, really liked the answer that Solomon gave, gave because this story goes on. This is from 1 Kings. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God said to him, you have asked this and have not asked for a long life for yourself. You have not asked for riches or for the life of those who hate you, but you have asked for understanding and to know what is right. Because you have asked this, I have done what you said. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart. No one has been like you before, and there will be no one like you in the future. I give you what you have not asked also. I give you both riches and honor, so that there will be no king like you all your days. And if you walk in my ways and keep my laws and word, as your father David did, I will allow you to live a long time. So Solomon's king, and and God says, hey, Solomon, I'll give you whatever you want. And Solomon says, hey, will you give me wisdom? And God says, that's a really good answer. Yes, not only will I give you wisdom, but I'm actually also going to give you the things that I bet went through your mind first when I asked you the question. I bet when I asked you, you were like, money, ask for money. Okay, maybe not money. Okay, power, ask that all my enemies drop dead in their sleep right now. Okay, no, I probably shouldn't ask for that. Okay, long life, ask it. No, okay, bro. I should probably ask for wisdom. Okay, I'm going to do it, right? This is me guessing what Solomon was thinking. And God says, I heard those thoughts of yours. I'm going to give you those other things as well. So Solomon's at a point in his life where he has now been told by God, you're going to have great wisdom, but you're also going to have riches and power and a long life. But God includes yet, again, he includes one simple but. Not that simple. It's challenging, but it's pretty straightforward. But I need you to follow my law as you live this life as the greatest king of all time. That's what I need you to do. I need you to follow my law. Well, it turns out there's a lot of evidence that this message sunk in. Um, One of the legacies we have from King Solomon uh, is the Proverbs. King Solomon wrote many of, maybe most of, what we call the book of Proverbs. The very beginning of the book of Proverbs, it is explaining why did Solomon write these Proverbs? Here's why. For gaining wisdom. That's why he wrote them, because Solomon clearly is a guy who gets the importance of wisdom. 
And then Solomon goes on to tell us some real gems about, about how to find wisdom ourselves if we want it. Solomon says, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Come on, Solomon, give me something better. Okay, though it costs all you have, get understanding. I'll I'll help you out. If you want, if you feel like wisdom, maybe like Solomon, you feel like wisdom is something you'd like more of, um, go and read the rest of the Proverbs because the wisdom that was valuable for Solomon then is still incredibly valuable for us today. Turns out, those of you that have students in the middle school group, was it the high school group too or just the middle school group? Both middle school, high school group. Um, Nikki and the youth leadership team had the students uh, challenge them to try to read a proverb every day for the whole summer so that maybe our students could get wisdom. Well, God tells Solomon he has everything, right? But I need you to follow my law. And actually, if Solomon's going to follow the law, which at this point in the story is pretty much what we would call the first five books of the Bible. It's a Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Because um, they don't have the rest yet, because this is a long time ago, right? You know, chronology. And in the book of Deuteronomy, we have what is likely to be understood as a requirement that Solomon knew was part of his life. Um, if you're going to be a good king, if you're going to follow the law, here's what Deuteronomy 17 says. He, the king must not take many horses for himself or make the people of Egypt or return to Egypt to get many horses because the Lord has told you, you must never again return that way. He must not take many wives for himself or his heart may turn away. And he must not gather much silver and gold for himself. Story continues. When he sits on the throne of his nation, he should write this law for himself in a book in front of the Levite religious leaders It should be kept with him, and he should read it all the days of his life. Then he will learn to fear the Lord his God by being careful to obey all the words of these laws, and he will not think he is better than his brothers. He will not turn aside from the law to the right or to the left, so that he and his children may live long in his nation in Israel. So, okay, Solomon, we're going to make this really simple. God's given you everything you could possibly need. What I need is for you to follow the law that I've given. And it's gonna, I'm going to make it really simple. What I want you to do is sit down and write out a copy and have some you know, notary public there to make sure you really you know, notarize it. It's good. We got the right thing. I just need you to read it every day. Because if you spend time reading this every day, um, it's not going to go wrong. And also, Solomon, I'm just going to make it clear. Some of the things to pay attention to, Solomon. Not too many horses. Not too much military power, right? Horses, military power. Not too many wives, Okay, we should talk about that. How many is too many? Uh, okay, but not too many wives. Not too much wealth. Don't, don't self-aggrandize, okay? And Solomon seems to, the lesson seems to sink in. One of the first things Solomon does is, he, it, we find out he spent seven years building the temple. A temple as a, as a permanent place for Israel to worship God, building a beautiful, lavish, just, just significant sort of center to the religious life of the people of Israel. So I'm like, I'm going to build a temple on a seven years long, spared no expense so that we can make sure we keep God at the center of our national life. I'm going to do this. And it was really good. The, the, the building a temple was a great way for Israel to remember that God provided for them, for Solomon to remember that God provided to them. Solomon, good job, Solomon. You're, you're helping your country follow God. Good job. This verse is the very last verse in 
chapter 6 of 1 Kings, right? Solomon got wisdom. He wrote the law. He's trying to follow God. He builds the temple. This is the last verse of chapter 6. And then we go to the first verse of 1 Kings chapter 7. We find out that it took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. And I did the math. It, It tells you, you can go and it tells you how many cubits long and wide and high the temple is and how many cubits long and wide and high the, 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 the wait, the temple and the palace, thank you, words. Um, and you can look up, you can Google how many, like what's a cubit? <clears throat> the, the temple, sorry, the palace was four times larger than the temple. And then the story goes on. And you know what Solomon does after he builds a great temple, good job, but then builds a bigger palace, a bigger home for himself. Like, house for God, that's a nice house for you, God. But man, you should see my house, because it's really awesome. And I'm going to take twice as long doing it. And then, remember that whole thing about Deuteronomy and the law and things that Solomon shouldn't do? And remember, though, Solomon, he's got everything. He's got wisdom, and God said riches and honor and long life. You know what Solomon does? We find out at the end of the story, he goes out and gets 700 wives. I'm not sure at what point that became too many. Um, <laughs> but that's definitely too many. But as if that wasn't enough, um, he also had 300 concubines. Um, There's stories about how much he had to build just, it takes a lot of room uh, to house, like, and then um, he had, I think, 12,000 horses, which were kept in 3,000 stables. And then this last one was a really fun bit of of Google rabbit hole. Um, Solomon collected taxes or took tribute from all of the territory that he owned. And the tribute was collected in something called a talent, which was a measure of weight and a talent of gold. And you can go and you can find, okay, how heavy was a talent? And how many ounces of gold was in a talent? And he collected 660 talents of gold per year in tribute from his territories. And if I were to sell 660 talents of gold in uh, Wednesdays, Dollar value for gold, it'd be somewhere around $1.4 billion per year for what was, in our modern standards, a pretty small little nation called Israel. Um, I don't know about you, but I think it's safe to say Solomon was not content. God gave him everything, and he always wanted more. And I think that's actually what is at the heart of discontentment. See, because God loves to give good gifts to his children. God loves to give lavishly. This isn't about whether or not it's right or wrong to have more, whether or not it's right or wrong to have abundance. These are two stories where God gave abundantly to his people. But what God is inviting us to say is that when we stop being grateful for the abundance he has given us, and instead all we want is more, We don't even want what we have. We just want more. Then we know for a fact that we will become discontent no matter what God has given us. And I think discontentment always kills. It chokes off the abundant life. It's like a snorkeler. I know that there's more than enough breath out there when my head's in the water and I've got this little tube and I know that I will always have oxygen coming in the tube. But if I squeeze that tube shut doesn't matter how much air there is out there. It's not going to come in to my lungs. So I'll ask you one more time. 
Are you content? As always, we come to the question of your move. I don't, I mean, how do we build the muscle of contentment? How do we learn and strengthen this critical heart posture? Um, I don't know if I can really give the definitive answer, but I want to suggest some things that I, that I hope, that I believe um, might be helpful. The first one that I didn't put up there, because uh, I don't know why I didn't put up there. I didn't put up there. I want to encourage you to practice, um, practice a simple phrase. One of the ways I think we can learn contentment, really simple, is to practice saying no thanks. One of the things that has been really significant for me in spiritual practice in many ways is try to keep things as simple as possible. To the degree that God kind of pokes, prods you with this message and, and brings it back to your mind, um, again, th- I'm not saying that it's bad to, to give gifts or it's bad to receive good things, or it's good, but sometimes if we want to learn contentment, sometimes when we're offered something, something good, something, it's not bad to take this, it's not wrong to take this, but I want to learn contentment, sometimes we just go, you know what? No thanks. I'm going to practice saying no thanks and being glad for what I have. Practice saying no thanks. Uh, Here's some other thoughts. First, evaluate your priorities. This is what we did at family camp a lot. We said, if our family really wants to follow God, what are our priorities? Here's the really funny thing about America. Um, The word priority, right? It means the, the things that come prior to, that come before. And if there's gonna be something that's truly your priority, there can really only be one thing that comes before everything else. You can't have multiple things that all come before everything else because one of them has to come first. I guess you could line them up in a line, but then none of them come before one another. They all, they're in it. But we here love, we can't handle priority. We have to make it plural. We need to have more priorities. The advice they gave us at family camp was, evaluate your priorities. Really ask yourself what really matters in your life. And when you do it, get specific and be ruthless. Are you willing to ruthlessly ask yourself whether this next thing, this next activity, this next commitment, this next use of time, this next use of money, this next next path in life, am I really willing to ruthlessly say to myself, you know what, maybe this is or maybe this isn't my priority. Curate your intake. We just it, it's, it's impossible to miss the fact that we live in a world where there's more content just being firehosed at us every minute of every day than any human in history has ever done. Our brains have spent the last thousands, tens of thousands of years being used to the volume of content that I can physically have through conversation or maybe books and newspapers, but now suddenly the volume of content we as humans could get in any minute of any day has exponentially increased at a crazy amount, and we find ourselves almost thoughtlessly sometimes consuming endless streams of content. What would it look like for you to seriously evaluate and then curate what content am I really willing to put into my eyes and put into my ears and put into my heart? Because I know that the content that I consume is going to make a difference with the attitudes of my heart. And you don't have to look far to find content that either either subtly or explicitly is trying to convince you that you don't have enough and that you do need more? Would you be willing to consider curating your intake of content? Next, practice Sabbath. 
going back to the commandments, the, the, the beginning commandments that God gave his people. And one of them, he says, God says, hey, I spent six days creating, and that was really good. And then on the seventh day, I stopped, and I rested. It's impossible not to come back from sabbatical and be reminded of how powerful rest is and how often I do things that I'll call rest or I'll try to convince myself are restful, but they're really not rest. Are we taking seriously God's command, Jesus' command? If we want to follow Jesus, he said, you've got to rest. Uh, last but not least, pay attention to your attention. This was one of the most kind of really practical, specific things. Uh, we live in such a distracted world that I, I find myself going through days and, and sort of in the back of my mind trying to evaluate how much of my time in a day is spent with a divided attention. Because you know what? There's a big difference between giving your divided attention to somebody, right? Kid comes up to you, yeah, yeah, hold on a second. I'm going to, you know, check who won the Olympic marathon trials while I'm talking to you, Naomi. Um, which, by the way, I found out and I'm really excited about who won the Olympic marathon. Um, you should be too. I know you are. It's amazing how much of my day I spend with divided attention. And you know what? Your focused attention is powerful. When was the last time you gave your focused attention to somebody. Think about how much more you like it when somebody gives you their focused attention. Think about how much more you like you when you give somebody your focused attention. Your focused attention is powerful, and it's a gift that only you can give to others. Here's one of the things I was challenged with. Uh, when something is a priority, you give it your undivided Attention. That's what you do with priorities. You find time and you find space for undivided, focused attention on what matters most. So, um, first thing I want to share is just as, as we journey on abundant life, I think that our ability to learn to be content matters so much. But we live in a world where the allure of discontentment, the pursuit of more, is always so risky. I want to leave you with uh, closing kind of metaphor to, to help it sink in, because this is, what, this is I think, um, what we do so often in America that, that makes us discontent. Uh, in order to illustrate contentment, I'm going to use, obviously, um, hot chocolate. You can just put it right here. Can I get, can I get two volunteers? Are there two? Um, I just need two volunteers. All you're going to do is drink hot chocolate. It's going to be great. Zach. Yes, Zach. Come on up. I need one more volunteer. Who's going to? Somebody be brave. Be bold. Be a yes. Oh, there we go. So hilarious, the two volunteers that just volunteered. I'm so happy for that. Um, so when I think about contentment, I think about hot chocolate. Probably not uh, off-brand um, instant hot chocolate, but this is easier for the purpose of sermon illustrations. Should have brought a spoon. That's going to be okay. Um, <laughs> it mixed when the water poured in. So just, just go with me. Picture, you know, like a cold Colorado day, right? Maybe there's some snow outside. Oh, for the win. Maybe there's some snow outside. Maybe you're in the mountains. Maybe you've been snowshoeing under the moonlight with your family and it's cold. And you get back. Oh, and you wrap your hands around the... Oh. Oh. And this is just contentment, right? 
Life is good. And it's like, here in America, what I think is, we've been given a lot from God. We've been given a lot from God. Um, we've, been, we've been blessed in a lot of ways. Um, here in our church, we've been blessed in many ways by God's presence and activity in our story, in our history, in, in the community, in the relationships, and the fellowship we have. I mean, these are two guys that I'm blessed to know. Actually, we hung out at a birthday party for our six-year-olds uh, just yesterday, and it was great. And I told them, hey, if nobody raises their hand, you need to raise your hand. And none of you raised your hand! Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. I thought other people were going to raise your hands, and I thought it would just, but no. You guys did it. Um, it's, like, it's like we've been given much, and so we know that we have in front of us this delicious... Um, mug of hot chocolate. We have, we have something that if I drank it, it would make me warm inside. It would, it would bring happiness and satisfaction. But, but we Americans aren't satisfied with enough. So even though we have enough that God gives us, we think, you know what I should do? I should add more. I should just, I could maybe fit in another thing in my schedule. I could maybe just add one more commitment onto my plate. I could maybe add just a little bit more. Has anybody ever found yourself looking at your life and thinking there's so much good stuff, but it kind of feels like maybe I've added a little too much busyness instead of abundance. Okay, Zach and Joel, I need you guys to close your eyes. Close them tight. Close them tight. There you go. Very careful, very careful. All right, very careful. There you go. Got it. All right, I want both of you, straight faces, just keep it straight. Both of you just take a drink of your cup of hot chocolate that you've got. Go ahead, Joel, you can take a drink. Zach, you can take a drink. Okay, um, now. <laughs> raise your hand if you just drank the, the rich, delicious hot chocolate. Raise your hand. Wow, okay, raise your hand if you just drink the watered-down, not delicious hot chocolate. Okay, you can open your eyes now. Now, here's what I want to know. Um, how did you know that it was the good stuff? It, it tasted like it should. It, it, just, it just tasted good. How did you know it was not the good stuff? Uh. <laughs> okay, you guys, thank, thank you to our volunteers. You can put your hot chocolate. Oh, yeah, you can, take, you can keep the hot chocolate. You can keep your, ooh, ooh. For those of you online, uh, Joel just said it tasted more like water than hot chocolate. But isn't that what we often do? We know God has given us abundant life. And instead of remembering to stop and savor what God has given us, we try to just keep pouring more in. And even while we're doing it, we can taste the fact that it's not good. But we keep adding more busyness anyway. So the worship team comes up, would you guys pray with me? God, I confess that I often am tempted to seek more instead of receiving what you've given me, what is more than enough already. Like King Solomon, even when it's clear that I've been given enough, I, I, I can seek to add more. Even if it doesn't taste good, I think maybe, God, many of us might acknowledge that's true in our lives.
as we think about your gift on offer, the gift of abundant life, God, help us to receive what you have given and to find the deep satisfaction of knowing that what you have given, God, your love and your presence in our lives, what you have given is enough. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.